Good evening and welcome to Counterpoint. My name is Scott Harris here Monday evenings between 8 p.m. and 9.30. And we're very happy that you could join us this evening. As usual, we have a lot of important issues we're going to be examining with some great guests. And um, we have um, always here on Monday nights, we talk about uh, political, economic, and social issues from progressive perspectives, not ordinarily given a lot of time or attention in our corporate media. And tonight, in just a little while, we're going to be speaking with Katja Schwenk. She's a reporter with the Lever Investigative News site. And we're going to be talking about her recent Lever article titled, Will Biden Rescind Trump's Boeing Immunity Deal? And this has to do with a lot of safety issues that uh, the major manufacturer of aircraft here in the U.S., Boeing, has had in recent years and a sweetheart deal that was made with Trump before he left office. And in view of the latest uh, Alaska Airlines door plug popping out in mid-flight, it's brought another uh, uh, lot of attention to the issue of Boeing and safety. We'll be talking with Katya about that later this evening. Pablo Priluca will be here. He's a doctoral candidate in the Department of History at Princeton University. And we're going to be talking about Argentina's newly elected anarcho-capitalist president, Javier Malay, his new government his austerity agenda, and a one-day general strike that was called by Argentina's labor unions back um, just last week. Still later tonight, Sarah Kenziar will be here. She's co-host of the Gaslit Nation podcast. And we're going to be talking about Donald Trump, his overtly fascist agenda that he keeps pronouncing on the campaign trail as he tries to capture the Republican Party nomination for president, and how our media has normalized, unfortunately, uh, what Trump and the Republican Party are saying and doing as if this is some kind of normal election campaign. That was Sarah later this evening. But uh, right now, I'm very happy to welcome back to our program uh, Robert Herbst. He's a civil rights lawyer in New York who served as a federal prosecutor in Chicago and Philadelphia. He's a co-chair of the U.S. chapter of the Israeli a committee against house demolitions, and former coordinator of the Westchester, New York chapter of Jewish Voice for Peace. Thanks so much for making time to come on our program again this evening, Robert. Uh, appreciate it. My pleasure, Scott. Happy to be with you. So, uh, as listeners may remember, Robert joined us to talk about uh, South Africa's uh, case against Israel under the Genocide Treaty. And uh, we will be talking about the, um, the the rulings or the orders issued by the International Criminal Court uh, this evening. Uh, th- those orders just issued this past Friday. So, yeah, as I, as I just mentioned, this past Friday, the International Court of Justice acted on South Africa's charge that Israel had engaged in genocide in its war in Gaza that has now killed more than 25,000 Palestinians, destroyed most of the territory's civilian infrastructure, a large percentage of homes, apartments, and anywhere that people can live safely, as well as hospitals mostly destroyed, schools, mosques, churches, and universities. The war in Gaza, of course, followed the October 7th Hamas terrorist attack that killed killed 1,200 Israelis and took 240 hostages back to Gaza, of which some 100 uh, remain in, in captivity. 
And Robert, I'm very happy you could join us tonight because I'd, I'd like you initially to summarize the orders issued by the International Criminal Court. Uh, I guess there are provisional rulings as the court uh, continues to uh, consider whether or not Israel is guilty of genocide. A review, as I think you mentioned uh, a couple of weeks ago, a review that will likely take, take a couple of years. Uh, yeah, Scott. Um, they they issued uh, uh, provisional measures, which is which is like uh, a preliminary uh, uh, injunction uh, that you would get in uh, in the state or federal court here. But before we get to the provisional measures, <clears throat> they were only able to issue provisional measures because they found that it was plausible, it's, that South Africa had made a plausible case that Israel was engaged in genocide in the Gaza Strip. And as a result of that, they have jurisdiction, the court has uh, jurisdiction, issue these, uh, uh, these preliminary relief measures that they call provisional measures. <clears throat> Excuse me. And there were essentially uh, six of them that were issued. Israel was ordered to take all measures to ensure that acts deemed genocidal under the Genocide Convention do not take place in Gaza. Secondly, to ensure that its military, the Israeli military, does not commit genocidal acts. Third, to prevent and punish incitement to genocide. Fourth, to enable and facilitate the provision of basic services and humanitarian assistance to the people of Gaza. Fifth, prevent destruction of and preserve evidence of genocide in its military operations. And last but not least, to report to the court within one month about its compliance with the, uh, with the first five provisional measures. It is a historic ruling by the United Nations highest court. As a result of it, all state parties to the Genocide Convention, including Israel and the United States, now have a binding legal obligation to make sure that any genocidal acts come to an immediate halt. So... Um, that's pretty it's it, it, it's a first when it comes to Israel and um, it is a huge moment for the International Court of Justice and a huge victory for the rule of law um, it, it could have gone the other way it didn't there was some disappointment by Palestinians and people around the world who are horrified by the number of civilians that have been killed thus far in Israel's war in Gaza, some 25,000 Palestinians. They had wanted the International Court of Justice to issue an order for a ceasefire. That did, yes. that did not happen. Maybe you could explain why you think that decision was not reached in this case. Yeah, I, I, I think there's there are two things to say about that. <laughs> One is that the court's jurisdiction relates only to genocidal acts. And um, 
in a, in a situation where there are military operations that could be performed by a country that are not genocidal, it's very hard for a court to say you've got to stop those non-genocidal acts as well as the genocidal ones. So, for example, Israel could have targeted only the Hamas fighters without laying waste to the entire Gaza Strip and killing 25,000 or 30,000 uh, Palestinians, uh, half, three-quarters of which are women and children. So I don't think that the court, uh, I think the court realized that they would be going, uh, be going beyond its jurisdiction. But I think the important uh, factor that is being overlooked is in order to comply with these provisional measures, for example, ensuring that acts deemed genocidal under the convention do not, place, do not take place in Gaza, right? That's the first one. That would essentially require Israel to end or drastically curtail its military operations. Same thing for the, the order that Israel has to enable and facilitate the provisions of basic services and humanitarian assistance to the people of Gaza. That would also require substantial curtailment or secession of the military operations in order to ensure that uh, that the aid workers and the doctors who are coming in to provide that assistance are safe uh, enough to be able to do it and to ensure that the conditions uh, are, are present so that this huge amount of assistance can come in. So I, I, I think that, that, it, that people are being a little too hard on the court uh, in asking them to do something that, they, they felt they couldn't do, but that but the, they accomplished, uh, uh, you know, by by means that they were able to do. So uh, I understand, the, you know, the, the concern, uh, but uh, but I think it's misplaced. I think it's directed at the court instead of the the relative weakness of our global political institutions and the fact that. Uh, we don't have a global executive. We don't have a global legislature. And the, the, the statute and rules of the court didn't really uh, uh, permit it to do it. Thank you for that, Robert. We are speaking with Robert Herbst, a civil rights lawyer in New York. And we're talking about uh, the International Court of Justice and their ruling that came out last Friday on South Africa's case against Israel alleging Israel committed uh, genocide in its war in Gaza. Um, Robert, what do you make of Israel and the U.S. response to the International uh, Court of Justice uh, ruling here? Previously, the Biden administration has said that the case was meritless and without any factual basis. And, of course, as you'd expect, Prime Minister Netanyahu of Israel has basically claim the court's ruling war was outrageous and uh, rejects all the provisions that were made in uh, in the finding of the court. Right. Well, I, I think we've got to watch what, uh, what the, uh, Biden and Netanyahu uh, and the United States and Israel does, not so much what they say. 
Because I think this is a huge political and public relations defeat for Israel, which now stands in the international dock of shame, the world's highest court, having found that it's credibly been accused of, of genocide. Um, and 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 look what's what is happening. Um, <clears throat> the New York Times reported uh, yesterday that uh, the parties seem to be closing in on on a deal for a two month truce, a full cessation of hostilities, <clears throat> um, which um, would not just permit the uh, you know the joint release of hostages and, and political prisoners uh, from both Gaza and and Israel, um, but uh, it would permit uh, the aid to 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 come in, and there is the Times reported uh, an anticipation or an expectation that the two months cessation of hostilities would um, uh, be extended and become essentially permanent. Now, I don't know if that deal will go through, but the fact that that uh, knowledgeable people are reporting that, uh, that in the wake of the court's decision, um, it is, you know, the deal is close, I think is a better indication of the impact of the court's decision than what uh, what the what the parties are saying, and in, and in fact, Algeria, which is a non permanent member of of the Security Council, you know they serve two years two year terms if you're not a permanent member, um, has exercised its right to call for a meeting of the Security uh, Council uh, to to discuss how to enforce the provisional measures that the court has uh, has imposed on on Israel. And I think, you know, that's keeping the pressure on Israel and the United States. And, and it raises the question of whether the U.S. is going to veto a, a Security Council resolution designed to enforce the provisional measures of the world's highest court. Um, it, it, it may, the United States may do it, but I, I'm not uh, uh, fully convinced that Biden will feel comfortable going down in history as the U.S. president who defied a court order from the highest court in the world and permitted genocide to continue. Mm. So, um, you know, it's hard, it's hard to say, but I, I, think, I think the decision is, is having an having a important impact. And I will just add, that on the same day it was issued, it was cited by the federal judge in California hearing the case against Biden, Blinken, and Austin for facilitating and being complicit in Israel's genocide. He held a three-hour hearing, uh, and he uh, ended it by saying it's the most difficult decision he's, he has to make in 20 years on the bench. So, again, no one knows how it's going to come out, but but the fact that he cited that the the, the the International Court of Justice's decision and seem to give it significant weight, I think is an indication that, you know, that this is not just a hill of beans or, you know, the, the paper that it's printed on, but that it's a, it's a very, very meaningful event. Uh, and, and, you know, for those of us who've operated in the international criminal tribunals, 
Um, it's uh, the notion that uh, that these international norms can really be applied to uh, to the most powerful nations on the face of the earth is an absolutely critical component of of, of making the world a, a, a fairer and juster place. Because if we don't have a rule of law, then life is uh, brutish and short. I'm leaving out with a third uh, adjective of Thomas Hobbes, but that was the essence of it. Yeah. Yeah, no, the double standards about uh, international conduct and the rule of law are, are you know, they're, they're legend. They're, <laughs> they're all over history. And, yeah, uh, and, and, you know, the interesting thing about this is that despite the, the political pressure that uh, could have been imposed on these judges, from all over the world, including the president, the presiding judge, who was American. <clears throat> this was a 15 to 1, or 15 to 2 uh, decision on some of the provisional measures and 16 to 1 on, on others. Mm -hmm. It was a virtually unanimous decision. Right. So, um, you know, I'm, 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 I'm overjoyed and thrilled with it. it it's it's as close to to what we what we could have uh, anticipated, uh, you know, anything that I could imagine. So okay. it, it's a big deal. Robert, I did want to ask you about something that uh, seems no coincidence. It's it, it seems it's no coincidence that Israel brought forth details in its uh, charge that they say twelve. UNRWA workers, and that's the UN Relief and Works Agency for Palestinian Refugees, uh, that Israel claimed participated in the October 7th uh, terrorist attack. The workers were fired by the agency, but the U.S. and other allied nations suspended their funding of UNRWA. And this comes at a time when the UN agency's emergency aid is needed most in Gaza. I wonder what you make of uh, this case. And I should just note here that the 12 workers, uh, an investigation is uh, reported to be going on whether or not these charges are, are true or not. But that would be 12 workers out of 13,000. And we're talking about 2.3 million people who are depending on the United Nations Agency for aid during this crisis with, with no historic comparison. Well, uh, yeah. And uh, uh, but, I, you know, I, I, I think we have to we have to say, first of all, we have to wait the outcome of the investigation. But if it turns out <clears throat> that 12 members of, of the UNRWA staff betrayed their obligations to the United Nations and uh, and to the people they serve and were also acting in a in a in a. In a uh, military, quasi-military capacity. Um, uh, that's that's to be deplored, and and they should be fired. Um, but I don't understand the uh, the cutting off of funds at at the worst possible time uh, to UNRWA um, by by Western nations, including the United States. Um, when the funding is absolutely critically needed. 
I, it, it, I, I just, it, it was, it was hard for me to, to fathom that, uh, that, that they could do it, um, that they would do it. Uh, it just seems to be a heartless, cruel, uh, piling on, um, on the, on the civilians, uh, who have lost their lives and, uh, and their physical, uh, emotional, uh, integrity and and their way of life because it's going to be really really hard to even after the the uh, uh, hostilities end and the genocide ends for them to uh, have a, any sort of restored uh, sense of, of a dignified life and the trauma of course is going to be uh, enormous um, so I'm, I'm I'm really upset at the United States government for uh, not only cutting off the funds, but um, essentially persuading uh, our allies or some of our allies to, to do it. Right, right. We're speaking with Robert Herbst, a civil rights lawyer who joined us a couple of weeks ago to talk about the South African uh, case against Israel in the International Court of Justice. And uh, now that we have the the pronouncement, the provisional announcements from the court, uh, we're going over those decisions. Um, Robert, many observers look at the court's rulings here on Israel and what's going on in Gaza and the war and say that enforcement of their rulings are not likely in the United in the United Nations Security Council. But I've heard other people say that the UN, the UN General Assembly can do some things that the UN Security Council may be unwilling to do, and those include suspending Israel's participation in the UN, uh, applying economic sanctions against Israel. Um, they could admit Palestine as an official state, which it is not now. Well, if, it, you know, if the Security Council thumbs its nose at, at its own court, uh, then, um, then the only recourse will be uh, in the General Assembly. Of course, the United States, even though it doesn't have a veto, uh, has enormous uh, political influence in the in the assembly also, uh, but uh, again, I I, I want to emphasize I am not persuaded that the that the United States and President Biden are willing to veto an enforcement resolution in the Security Council because it, it would be devastating to the rule of law. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, presidents, people that politicians who get elected president have significantly large egos. I, I, I find it hard to believe that Biden will be comfortable with, as I said before, um, going down in history as someone who um, perpetuated a genocide, voted and, uh, and, you know, caused the United States to vote in such a way in the Security Council to do it. Now, we have supported Israel in the past and, and provided a measure of impunity. But this is genocide. This is, the, this is the crime of all international crimes. And um, 
you know, with the Holocaust uh, still fresh in many people's minds, um, you know, genocide is different. So I, I'm not sure that that's going to happen. One of the reasons I think there's going to be a deal before, um, you know, or the, or the setting of the parameters of the deal before push comes to shove in the Security Council is I don't think uh, the United States wants to be put in that position. And I'm not even sure that Israel wants to be uh, in, the, in the position of uh, of disregarding a court order that tells it to stop uh, committing genocide. I mean, Israel was established because because of the victims of genocide. So it would be, in my view, um, uh, I mean, genocide is a moral catastrophe for Israel and the Jewish people. Um, but uh, to continue it in the face of, of, of an order uh, from the World Science Court would just add to that. Maybe it'll happen. I'm not saying it won't, but I'm just saying that that uh, I'm not convinced it, 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 that it is going to happen that way. Well, Robert, I will just leave you with the last word here as we run out of time. Uh, what is your view? And we only have a minute or two left, but what is your view of the role of public protest right now in this critical moment after this decision by the International uh, Court of Justice was issued, especially here in the United States, where so much seems to be at stake in terms of Biden Biden administration decisions about how to respond to this court ruling? I think it's, I think it's huge. And I think, I think we ought to be in the streets. Uh, I've been in the streets. Um, and JVP is in the streets. Um, it's huge because uh, President Biden, in my view, underestimated the, the political impact of his unleashing Israel with no, no constraints and no restraints. Um, I, I, I think he, he, he thought that um, it was important to get the money uh, for his campaign, but I think he overlooked the fact that in battleground states, there are a lot of um, Palestinians, Arabs, and Muslims. And the Muslim community is now organizing itself, uh, really for the first time. And they, um, uh, I'm not, you know, I'm not sure that in a state like Michigan, in which uh, the numbers of of uh, Muslim, Palestinian, Arab uh, voters are far uh, uh, far higher than the margin that Biden won uh, over Trump in 2020. When all of these people were voting for Biden, I'm not sure that uh, that he's not going to. You know, I, I think there's a, a reasonable chance he's going to lose if he doesn't um, change course and and uh, try to ameliorate the uh, the genocide that has uh, occurred so far. Uh, so I, I I think I think the political pressure is really important. And people getting in the streets, I think, is is significant. But right. we'll see. Robert, appreciate uh, you assessing uh, what this International Court of Justice did here in this decision on South Africa's uh, charge against Israel. And I hope we'll be able to stay in touch on uh, things that uh, will follow on at the United Nations and elsewhere. Appreciate uh, 
your, your sharing your thoughts with our audience tonight. Thank you. Thank you, Scott. It's, uh, I'm happy to do it. Take care now. You too. Thanks, Robert. Yeah. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. That's Robert Herbst, civil rights lawyer in New York who served as a federal prosecutor in Chicago and Philadelphia. Uh, he's co-chair of the U.S. chapter of the Israeli Committee Against House Demolitions and a former coordinator with Westchester uh, branch of Jewish Voice for Peace. This is Counterpoint. My name is Scott Harrison. Here's some music to take us to our next segment about problems that uh, the Boeing Aircraft Manufacturer Corporation has had. Stay with us. Music composed by Hans Zimmer, following our discussion with Robert Herbst and uh, our discussion of the verdict in, or at least the provisional verdict in the International uh, Court of Justice on South Africa's complaint of genocide launched at at Israel's war in Gaza. Certainly things we're going to be following in future weeks. Right now, I'm very happy to welcome to our program Katja Schwenk, She's a reporter with the Lever Investigative News site, and we're happy Katya could uh, join us this evening to talk about her recent uh, Lever News article titled, Will Biden Rescind Trump's Boeing Immunity Deal? Thanks so much for joining us, Katya. Appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. So I'll just begin with with a summary of some recent events. Uh, most of our listeners are familiar with the very frightening news uh, story earlier this month that a door plug on an Alaska Airlines Boeing 737 MAX jet fell out of the plane in mid-flight. Thankfully, no one was killed or or very seriously injured. But your recent article, Katya, uh, recounts very serious problems at Boeing, America's major aircraft uh, manufacturer. The problems they've had since 
two other 737 jetliners crashed in 2018 and 2019, killing a total of 346 people. Katja, as we begin, I wonder if you'd tell our listeners about the deal that Boeing struck with the Trump administration as Trump was leaving office after those fatal crashes. And the deal was struck to avoid being held accountable for flaws in the aircraft as well as allegations of fraud. Sure. Yeah, it's an important part of the story here, I think. Um, So back uh, during the Trump administration, um, just before he was about to leave office, um, you know, federal prosecutors were um, investigating uh, Boeing for um, committing fraud um, after the 2018 and 2019 crashes, which, as you said, um, were absolutely devastating, killed hundreds of people. Um, And federal prosecutors found that people, um, executives at Boeing or Boeing um, employees had concealed um, important important aspects of this flight control system that contributed to the crashes from federal regulators. So essentially, they had not, um, you know, they had, they had concealed these new um, flight controls um, and potentially avoided oversight that could have prevented those, those really serious fatal crashes. Um, and instead of, you know, moving forward with the prosecution of the company, what happened was that federal prosecutors struck a deal with Boeing Um, what's called a deferred prosecution agreement. Um, And this deal essentially said, you know, Boeing needed to come into compliance, comply with U.S. fraud laws over the next couple years. If Boeing did that, if they, you know, paid a fine, created some ethics programs to avoid future violations, they would not get prosecuted by federal prosecutors, um, which means there, there would be no trial. Right. So, you know, this deal um, recently expired uh, shortly after the pretty horrific Alaska Airlines flight in which thankfully no one died, but in which we saw this um, very serious failure of the aircraft. And now, as I wrote about, this deal is potentially in question. Thank you for that summary of the issues at, at hand right now. In the agreement, as you write in your article, Boeing was obligated to protect safety and detect violations of U.S. fraud laws, including its contractors and subcontractors. Could you tell our listeners a bit about Spirit Aerosystems in their role in that door plug that fell out of the sky in that Alaska Airlines flight? Sure. So Spirit Aerosystems um, is a company that's based in Wichita, Kansas. Um, unlike Boeing, it's it's not as much of a household name, but this is a really massive publicly traded company. Um, and Spirit Aerosystems is an, uh, an important supplier for Boeing and its um, 737 programs, as well as, you know, manufacturing for other aircraft. Um, and Spirit Aerosystems uh, is responsible, among other things, for manufacturing um, the body of some Boeing 737 MAX planes. Um, and that included the uh, kind of plane that we saw um, experience of, you know, door panel blowout over Portland, Oregon, the Alaska Airlines flight. Um, it was Spirit Aerosystems who manufactured the door panel 
um, in the body of the plane that experienced that failure. And, and you know, I, I will say, of course, it's not clear the, who exactly is responsible, what exactly led to the failure. Um, you know, the federal investigators are looking at both Boeing and Spirit. Um, it's not clear yet who really um, where the blame lies. But um, but what, when we started digging into Spirit um, after the you know failure, we discovered um, some pretty serious allegations from former Spirit employees, this key Boeing supplier of fraud um, at Spirit, in which workers were told that they had to conceal um, high numbers of manufacturing defects and um, or, you know, threatened with losing their jobs. These are allegations that are in a federal lawsuit. Um, and we talked to, you know, legal experts and people working with the victims of families, um, lawyers working with the victims of um, the families of victims in those two fatal crashes who say that they think these fraud allegations that a key Boeing supplier at Spirit Aerosystems could impact this deal um, that Boeing struck with federal prosecutors under the under the Trump administration um, because Boeing was Boeing agreed to you know monitor and oversee fraud at um, at its suppliers at companies like Spirit that are you know helping to build these planes. Right, and I want to get to what the Biden administration has to, has to decide very soon. And but going back to Spirit Aerosystems. There was an interesting discussion in your article about problems with the door panel that blew out on Alaska Airlines and questions about whether Spirit Aerosystems was the one at fault for not putting the bolts in or tightening the bolts. But then it, it, in your article, and you could shed some light on this, it turned out there were problems with the door panel that Boeing was aware of. And they had to reinstall the panel because of those earlier problems. So it could be that Boeing was the last one to touch that door panel in question on that Alaska Airlines flight. Yes. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, like I said, um, the sort of official investigation into what happened is still ongoing. Um, But, you know, the Seattle Times um, reported um, on two whistleblower accounts. Um, a really fantastic story of two accounts from uh, whistleblowers at Boeing, um, one of whom has posted these comments publicly, anonymously, and, you know, they have yet to be fully verified. Um, but if we are to believe sort of this preliminary account of what happened with the door panel, um, it seems that it was potentially installed by Spirit. This is the panel that blew off the plane. Installed by Spirit Aerosystems. Um, and then, because of another separate manufacturing defect um, on the plane, Boeing reinstalled or, or took the door panel off the plane. And when Boeing went back to reinstall it, they did not correctly bolt it um, on the plane, leading to this really massive failure um, in during a flight. So, you know, if we are to believe that account, um, the sort of initial reporting, it seems that perhaps it was Boeing um, that you know, incorrectly installed this panel after it was first installed by Spirit. But, you know, I think, um, and, you know, I, I wrote about this too. Either way, the reason that it seems that Boeing was taking off the door panel in the first place was because of, a, you know, an issue with production caused by Spirit. So, you know, I, I think the further investigation is clearly needed into, you know, manufacturing issues at both of these companies. Right. 
We're speaking with Katya Schwenk, a reporter with the Lever Investigative News site. We're talking about her recent article titled, Will Biden Rescind Trump's Boeing Immunity Deal? And I wanted to get to that very topic um, uh, summarized in the title. And that is, as you write in the article, the Biden administration has sole discretion whether or not to now hold Boeing accountable for breaching the agreement, if that's what they find, and pursuing prosecution. Um, Tell us a bit about what you hear about where the Biden administration is leaning, both before and after the incident on that Alaska Airlines flight. Sure. Um, So, yes, as I said, the steel is struck under the Biden administration um, now, or sorry, under the Trump administration back right before he left. Um, left office in 2021. Now the deal has expired and prosecutors under the Biden administration are deciding um, whether or not to dismiss the case, whether Boeing has complied with the terms of the deal or whether to say, you know, Boeing has failed to comply with the terms of the deal. Now we're going to bring charges against Boeing. We're going to take this case to trial. Um, But, you know, the Department of Justice has not said much to me about what their plans are, um, even with this under the new administration. Um, you know, lawyers for um, families of the victims of the flight crashes who oppose um, the deal, the case being dropped against Boeing, they told me that they expect that federal prosecutors um, will probably still move to dismiss the case against Boeing. Um, they're hoping that a judge is going to intervene instead. Um, So, you know, we're waiting to see it's, but we're going to, you know, likely in about six months, once the review period is over, we're going to see where the Biden administration stands on the deal. Well, Katya, I did want to ask more about the family members of passengers killed in the 2018 and 2019 Boeing 737 MAX crashes. What's their position and feeling about what the Biden administration should do here? And, uh, what kind of response have they gotten, if you know, from, from the Biden administration? Sure. Yeah, it's an important question. Um, you know, the families of the victims have opposed the deal from the beginning. Um, you know, there is a team, a legal team representing, I believe, 15 families um, of people who were uh, killed in those crashes. And they have been working to fight against the deal. They say that because prosecutors never consulted with the victims before the deal was signed. Um, it was negotiated essentially secretly that that broke the law. In fact, it violated the rights of the victims. And they think for that reason, the, you know, the deal never was legal and it should be struck down. And so they're asking the judge to do that, or they will be asking the judge to do that, you know, if prosecutors ask to dismiss the case. Um, I, I don't know whether, you know, the families have heard Um, You know, since then from the Biden administration, um, it seems likely that at some point, you know, prosecutors will consult with the victims since they were required to do so from the beginning. Um, But, you know, what we've seen both before the Alaska Airlines incident that's brought all this recent attention on Boeing, but also before that, you know, ever since the deal was signed that the families have been, you know, in resolute opposition um, to the case against Boeing being dismissed. Nice, Katya. You know, I did want to ask you how the problems with safety and quality control at Boeing 
relate to deregulation of corporate America in general, where companies like Boeing often are allowed by the Federal Aviation Administration in this case to hire their own engineers to act as safety inspectors with really an inherent conflict of interest. I don't I know your article didn't cover that aspect of this issue, but generally I think we know since the days of Ronald Reagan in the 1980s that uh, corporate America uh, was allowed to skate free on all sorts of regulations uh, to ensure public safety on you know food safety and uh, cars, uh, planes and the like. Um, I'm not sure uh, if you if you know the answer to that, Katya, but maybe you could just give us your your views on it. Sure. No, I mean, I think that's a really important part of the story. Um, you know, we need to think about what happened in the Alaska Airlines incident. We need to think about the flight, flight crashes, the fatal crashes in 2018 and 2019, you know, as part of a larger trend with Boeing, or at least I think that is what some aviation safety experts I've spoken with have told me, is that really, you know, we have seen the FAA, um, you know, fed, federal regulators that are meant to oversee safety issues at, at Boeing, um, at plane manufacturers like Spirit and Boeing suppliers. Um, we've seen the FAA be underfunded systematically. Um, which has led to what you referenced, it's sort of it's what's what it's called a designee program, in which because the FAA doesn't have enough of its own staff, enough of its own funding to carry out all inspections on its own, you know, for many routine inspections, it will, you know, allow Boeing employees who answer to, you know, Boeing executives to inspect planes on their behalf. Um, and some... Aviation experts say that, you know, this is really a problem, that it really does create a conflict of interest. So I think, you know, the story of Boeing, the story of the steel, and the story of what happened um, earlier this month really leads back to, as you said, this broader issue uh, of deregulation, of weakened oversight of corporate America. Um, and I think raises real questions but for um, us to ask not just Boeing, but also the FAA and other agencies um, and and people in power who, you know, have the responsibility to make sure something like what we saw um, over Portland, Oregon this month just, you know, didn't happen in the first place. Absolutely. Katya, thanks so much for uh, spending time with us tonight and talking about your important story here on uh, safety in airplanes. I, I, it comes home to many people who are booking flights. I know I was looking at a, a flight uh, later this spring and I'm, Looking at the 737 MAX, you know, these things uh, creep into all of our lives in terms of our own personal concerns. But uh, before you go, Katya, tell our listeners how they can find the article and some of the other great investigative reports that they can find at uh, The Lever. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you can head to levernews.com. We've been reporting on Boeing for the last few weeks and we will continue to do so. Um, and yeah, we would love it if you read and supported our work and, and, you know, thank you so much again for the conversation and for having me on. Thank you, Katya. We'll stay in touch as the developments in this story, uh, uh, come down the pike, but appreciate you being here. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate it. Take care. Bye-bye. That's Katya Schwank, a reporter with the Lever Investigative News site. And again, the title of her article we've been talking about is, Will Biden Rescind Trump's Boeing Immunity Deal? 
This is Counterpoint. My name is Scott Harris here on WPKN in Bridgeport. And uh, here's some music from John Lennon. I'm sick and tired of This is Counterpoint. My name is Scott Harris here on Listener Supported WPKN in Bridgeport. Right now, I'm very happy to welcome to our program Pablo Priluca, a doctoral candidate in the Department of History at Princeton University. He's written a lot about what's going on in Argentina right now with November's election with Javier Malay's uh, new government, uh, Javier Malay's uh, self described anarcho capitalist. And he has done some very dramatic things in terms of uh, issuing edicts to the, to dramatically change the uh, state of Argentina and uh, addressing its economic crisis. And we're very happy uh, Pablo can join us this evening to talk about um, issues uh, of, uh, of Javier Malay's uh, uh, ideology and his government as well as uh, the response of the Argentinian people. There was a massive uh, 12-hour strike just the other week, and we'll be talking about that as well. Um, Pablo, thank you so much for, for joining us. First of all, I appreciate you being here. Thanks so much for having me. It's my pleasure, Scott. Pablo, um, I, I wonder, first of all, if you would tell us briefly about Javier Malay's history and uh, what he calls his anarcho-capitalist ideology. Of course. So the, the funny thing is that there's not much history to be to be told. Uh, his past is, is relatively unknown. He was so he has a degree in economics from not a great school in Buenos Aires, uh, where I'm from as well. 
Uh, and after that, he mostly worked as a consultant for private firms. Not a great consultant, just like a random one. And then suddenly, I would say five or six years ago, maybe maybe a few years more, he became one of these TV clowns where he was like going to TV shows as a panelist or, or just like as a, as a columnist and, and make all these weird claims about, about the, what, what Argentina should do in terms of of you know dismantling the central bank and, and dollarizing the economy, et cetera, et cetera. And what looked like a shock at the beginning, like people laughed at him and, and many, 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 including myself, thought that he was just a clown, just a just nuts. And actually, uh, he started you know getting more and more attention. And then in 2021, he won a seat uh, at the house. Uh, elected by the city of Buenos Aires, my city, which makes it kind of sad, and and suddenly he was running for president with 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 what people thought were were not really high chances to get elected, but he did. So here we are. In terms of of his libertarian or anarcho-capitalist ideology, so what Mirai thinks is that the state should only preserve private property and what he calls the right to live, uh, basically talking about abortion, right? Uh, or the right to life. Uh, so basically the state should only meddle when it comes to defense, national defense, security, and not much more, just protecting private property. Uh, because basically the state and the politicians involved in the state, what he calls the caste, uh, is, is basically a scam. So politicians, you know, they they, they collect uh, taxes, they collect revenue from the people just to implement certain populist or demagogic uh, policies that led to them being re-elected. And that's a cycle that will never end. And if you ask me, and if you ask him probably, as, as some journalists have done, I think he, he doesn't believe in democracy as it, as it is, right? Mm. Yeah, but that... Uh... He's he's infamous for campaigning with a chainsaw, and uh, you know that yeah. that captured a lot of attention yeah. not only in Argentina but around the world. He he looked like a maniac, but you know there are a lot of people who uh, talk about uh, Javier Malay as sort of Argentina's own Donald Trump. Uh, you think that comparison is valid? It's it's interesting because usually when I need to explain Argentinian politics to my friends here in the States, it's not always that easy. With Malay, it was easier, definitely, because people, you know, went through something similar. I think there are similarities. I think there are certain, you know, there is a resemblance, but there are also huge differences in, for example, there is not a Republican Party in Argentina, as you have here, so he was not running inside a previous, you know, structure. So he made his own, even if he had some collaboration from from previous parties that that already existed. Uh, so there are differences. I think, if you ask me in terms of personal characters, I think Trump is way more. I don't want to to, to, to step too far into American politics, but a bit more cynical and 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 and, and less uh, crazy, if you want. I think Millet is genuinely kind of crazy, uh, which Trump is not. Uh, having said that, their ideas are kind of similar. Their disbelief about democracy are kind of simi- is kind of similar. So and there is a comparison to be made between not just Millet and, and Trump, but also Bolsonaro in Brazil or, or, or some others like Modi in India and some other some other leaders around the world. Or, or, or for the case being the, the president of El Salvador, right? That has been on the, on the news a lot as well, Bukele. 
Mm, right, 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 in El Salvador. I just want to remind our listeners that this is WPK and a Bridgeport, 89.5 FM. My name is Scott Harris. The program is Counterpoint. And uh, this evening, we're, t- we're talking about uh, uh, Javier Malay and his presidency in Argentina were elected in November. And we're speaking with Pablo Priluca, a doctoral uh, candidate in the Department of History at Princeton University. And uh, Pablo, I wondered if you would uh, tell, our, tell our, our listeners who may not be aware of the depths of Argentina's current economic crisis with 160, 200 percent inflation, crippling debt, and that, and that economic crisis impact on the majority of Argentinians and how that led to Malay's election victory. Of course, Scott. So, uh, yeah, Argentina is in an economic crisis and has been for a while, I would say. So the country doesn't have sustained economic growth since 2011, which is more than a decade by now. Uh, and, and adding to that, the inflation is going under control. It was already high, but in the last year it reached almost a 200 annually. So if people in the U.S. were surprised when they had to deal with a 7 or 15 percent uh, during the pandemic, this is different level of inflation and 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 it's interesting in a way because you know even if the country is in an in an economic crisis it still has some social and economic indicators that makes it one of the best places to live in latin america uh, other than, than probably uruguay and chile the you know the levels of, of violent crime are relatively low the you know the, the the unemployment levels are not that high so, but inflation is something that, uh, you know, I, I, I heard stories, Argentina had an hyperinflation in 1989, and I heard stories about that from my parents. It's something, and, I, and I've seen it, I, I've, I mean, I've seen it now, and I, I, I talked to my friends back there, and, 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 and whenever I go visiting, it's, it's shocking. I mean, living under a 200% of inflation means that you need to, you know, strategize all the time what you're going to do with your savings. I mean, you cannot just have savings in pesos, which is the Argentinian currency, but you need to go and get dollars if you can, or you need to, you know, uh, do some sort of like weird deposits in the banks to get some, some interest rate, or you need to like buy bonds or shares. So it demands a lot of energy from regular people that don't really want to spend that energy on, on, on dealing with their own finances. Uh, having said that, uh, the economic situation is not great, was not great before the pandemic. The pandemic certainly did not help. And I say this because one of the main problems that the Argentine economy has right now is the high levels of uh, foreign debt, right? With the IMF, but also with some private holders. So bef- so the, 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 there, there's, it's a long history. I mean, it's, it's kind of complicated to explain how we got here, but I would say like different administrations had different kind of responsibilities. In, in this situation, and 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 this kind of lets me to to to, to try to explain why why people voted for for Millet, right? Because I, I, I usually use a metaphor, right? So if your car is not working, your automobile, your car, your vehicle is not working, so first you check if the engine is working, and if that doesn't solve it, then you think, okay, maybe it's the transmission. And if that's not working and you try three or four different strategies and, or, and none of them work, you're like, okay, let's get a knife and cut the tires and see if that makes something. And I think that's where we are right now. I mean, we voted for someone who has no real solutions for the huge problems that Argentina have, have right now, has right now. 
and and I'm pretty sure that, that the ending point is going to be way worse than, than what we, 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 we had in, in 2023. But it's sadly, we will have to wait and see. Right. And uh, certainly a, a certain sense of desperation among Argentina has played a role in them choosing this so-called outsider, the guy who doesn't have a lot of experience in government, um, and his wild economic theories. Um, and that seems to be reason why at least some people took a chance on him. Yeah. Yeah, I definitely understand. I mean, I, I do think that there's probably a 10 or 20 percent of, of, of his electorate who are totally convinced that, you know, and the central bank should be, you know, dismantled. The welfare state is the main problem of Argentina. Uh, immigration is bad. Uh, abortion is it, it's a crime. I mean, uh, there is a strong, you know, core that are, you know, a strong core identified with, with his, his ma- main ideas, but also there is a bunch of people who are just desperate, uh, who are living under poverty, especially young people who didn't see, you know, a perspective of, of, of upward social mobility, who didn't see the chance of getting their own house or getting a car or, you know, have savings and, and improve their, their living conditions. And after, you know, years and years of choosing different rational governments, I mean, no matter the, 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 the political sign of them, uh, more traditional governments, uh, now they, they, they went for the outsider. And, and in a way, even if it's terrible and it's scary, it, 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 it makes sense. Right. I, I wouldn't blame them. Pablo, I did want to ask you about uh, Malay's uh, program. Please summarize for our audience Malay's government's actions since he took office regarding regarding issuing a decree with 300 edicts to repeal laws, eliminate dozens of state regulations, uh, enabling the privatization of state companies, and his threat to use armed force to to repress protesters. Yeah, so there's a bunch, there's a lot to unpack here. I would say there is like one Millet, the Millet during the campaign for the run for the presidency, who had like one program and a set of, of, of ideas. And then there is the Millet in power, who is in a way learning that democracy implies bargaining bargaining and negotiations and, 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 and you know, political exchanges or whatever with, with other political forces, especially in the Congress. So what he's been doing so far, he hasn't accomplished much, much yet. Uh, we need to see what will happen, but so far there's not much he has done. So, the, you know, you, you mentioned the degree, you mentioned the, 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 the elimination of, of state regulations and the privatization of state companies. Yes, he wants to privatize the few state companies that we still have. Why do I say the few? Because Argentina has a first, had a first wave of privatizations during the early 90s, so there are not much left to privatize, right? The main one, and I think is the one that we, we, we should definitely stop him from, from doing it, is the, the oil company, the petroleum company, that he has already given up in the middle of the negotiations in the Congress. So, so that apparently it's not happening right now. Uh, but yeah, he's trying to privatize the others. He's trying to deregulate the unionization of workers, which is, we can talk about that later, but it's, 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 a, it's a huge thing for Argentina. He's been, you know, implying that he will use armed forces uh, to repress protests and just like 
regular crime, which would be, I mean, considering the experience of Mexico and, and other experiences in Latin America, it doesn't sound like a great idea. Uh, but so far, he has not that he has not done much than just you know claiming that he will do it, which is not. I mean, it could be worse. He could just go and do it, but it also creates this atmosphere you know, of legitimation of political repression, right? Which might come at some point. And I think that's one of the questions that, that we should address at some point in this conversation. Uh, pa- Pablo, I just then, I just have to, yeah. uh, inter- we only have a couple of minutes left, so I, I wanted to make sure to, to get in this last question before we run out of time. And um, there, there's so much to cover here. Well, we're going to have you back. Yeah, yeah, it's a long. <laughs> it, it is. But, um, there was a recent uh, 12-hour general strike called by uh, yeah. Argentina's labor unions, and it was really yeah. it was really one of the most significant uh, signs of opposition to Malay's uh, agenda that we've seen in Argentina yeah. since his election. What are the prospects that uh, the opposition will rise up to prevent some of his most radical uh, uh, ideas from from coming to pass? So I think that it it was. It was a very important expression of discontent. Uh, we need to be careful. The people who, you know, participated in the strike and the people who participated in the huge, massive demonstration that took place last week were the people that were already against him, right? So we need to be careful that we should not buy our own narrative. Uh, and I think that you will see a significant challenge to Millet's government once the people that voted for him start feeling the discontent or start feeling, uh, you know, uh, disappointed, uh, if you want. So whenever prices uh, get too high or salaries go too low, uh, then you will have to see people that cannot pay for their, you know, health insurance, people that cannot, you know, buy books for their kids at school that will not be able to get, you know, new clothes, whatever, like basic needs that people need to deal with or even food. That's when you're going to see a huge crisis right now when it comes to unions and when you can, when it comes to left wing or sort of central left wing uh, political parties, I think what they are focusing on is trying to stop the most long term damaging measures that he's trying to implement. And I would say, I would say, those are mainly the privatization of public companies like the like the old company and the dollarization of the economy, which could be a disaster for Argentina right now. Well, thank you, Pablo. I do appreciate you being here. And, uh, you know, it's significant in that uh, we've seen the pink wave of uh, left-leaning yeah. leaders elected throughout Latin America. And there's a lot of change afoot and people looking for solutions. The, the election in Guatemala... Uh, someone who has railed yeah. against corruption and the violence of previous governments. It's uh, it's an interesting time, and I'd love to have you back to talk more about the situation in Argentina and Latin America in general. But I appreciate you being here. And Pablo, is there a website you refer our listeners to? Uh, about about Argentina, about myself, about <laughs> yeah, yeah, Argentina. I guess that would be a good place. To about Argentina. Well, I mean, there. Are, I, 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 in English, you should. I mean, sometimes you get stuff published on on at Chagovin. Uh, I would say there are a few pieces at the New Left Review that you can check. But for news, uh, I would go for Nakla and and Chagovin, Those two. Got it. N- Nakla. North American Congress of Latin America and Jacobin Magazine. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, we'll stay in touch, Pablo, and I appreciate you being here tonight. Thank you. Thanks, Scott. Take care. Thanks so much. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. That's uh, Pablo 
Preluka, a doctoral candidate in the Department of History at Princeton University. This is Counterpoint. My name is Scott Harris. Stay tuned. Sarah Kenziar joins us next. Me llaman el desaparecido cuando llega ya se ha ido volando vengo volando voy de prisa de prisa rumbo perdido cuando me buscan nunca estoy cuando me encuentran yo no soy el que está enfrente porque ya me fui corriendo más allá me dicen el desaparecido fantasma que nunca está me dicen el desagradecido pero esa no la verdad, yo llevo en el cuerpo un dolor que no me deja respirar, llevo en el cuerpo una condena que siempre me echa a caminar, me dicen el desaparecido, que cuando llega ya se ha ido, volando vengo, volando voy, deprisa, deprisa, rumbo perdido. Dicen el desaparecido, fantasma que nunca está, me dicen el desagradecido, pero esa no es la verdad, yo llevo en el cuerpo un motor que nunca deja de rolar, llevo en el alma un camino destinado a nunca llegar. Nunca estoy cuando me encuentran yo no soy el que está enfrente porque ya me fui corriendo más allá me dicen el desaparecido cuando llega Manu Chao with Desparacido following our discussion of what's going on in Argentina uh, following the election of Malay in that country the guy with the chainsaw we'll be, we'll have Pablo back on uh, later on uh, next month to talk about uh, the issues of uh, opposition to his regime in Argentina. But right now, I'm very happy to welcome to our program Sarah Kenziar. She's co-host of the widely acclaimed Gaslit Nation podcast and author of several books. They knew how a culture of conspiracy keeps America complacent, hiding in plain sight. And she's got a new book coming out, The Last American Road Trip. Sarah has a Substack page you might be interested to subscribe to. And uh, Sarah and the co-host of Gaslit Nation, Andrea Chalupa, have uh, written an incredible book titled Dictatorship, It's Easier Than You Think. Sarah, thank you so much for making time to come on our show again. Appreciate you having, having you back. Oh, thank you for having me. So our topics aren't always so enjoyable, but I am glad to get your sense of things because, um, uh, yeah, a lot to be upset and uh, worried about. Um, Sarah, you've you've long warned uh, our our nation about the dangers of fascism before and during uh, President Trump's time in office. And since the January 6th, 2021 insurrection or failed coup, Trump has been lots more blunt about his goals should he win the 2024 presidential election. He talks openly now about dictatorship and terminating all government civil servants who aren't loyal to him. He proudly quotes from Adolf Hitler when he attacks leftists, Marxists, and immigrants, referring to them as vermin and poisoning the blood of the country. And the alarming thing is that polls now say 
that uh, hands down he's going to win the Republican primary election and and be um, the Republican presidential candidate. And, you know, it it just seems that we are uh, seeing all sorts of bad signs. Biden is weak in many of the battleground states and our very warped uh, uh, electoral college system really, you know, is a, is a bane on democracy. But we're stuck with it for the time being. And I, I wanted to ask you um, something that I'm feeling. It's, it's very frightening to observe uh, corporate media's coverage of the Republican primary campaign and the general election, which had really started, whereby um, both some of the largest uh, print and television news uh, outlets have normalized the Trump campaign, ignoring or glossing over Trump's clearly uh, detailed threats of how he'll dismantle democracy should he be elected this November. I wanted to get your feelings on <laughs> if you're sharing some of the uh, the, the, the kind of outrage uh, that I'm feeling. Yeah, absolutely, especially because this is the third election in a row in which Trump has blatantly proclaimed his ambitions, which were always dictatorial. I mean, he was saying the same things in 2016. He was saying the same things in 2020. Back in 2016, uh, you know, Roger Stone, his campaign advisor, said there would be a bloodbath if he were not put into office. And that was basically their plan that they put into action um, in January, on January 6th, when Biden had been proclaimed uh, the winner of that election. And so they're actually very consistent. And I think the fact that so many articles from this time period are now paywalled or difficult to access or even deleted has kind of marred collective memory of how blunt Trump was the entire time about his plans. You know, people reacted to it differently. They would laugh at it. You know, they would blow it off and not take it seriously. Even when he was in office, you know, he was purging agencies. He was packing courts. He packed the Supreme Court. He did all the things that he's saying, you know, that he's just going to do more of if he comes in again. And the difference is now, you know, people do take it seriously because they lived through um, a second Trump term. But they I mean, through one Trump term, but they don't take it seriously enough to press on the institutions that exist to actually do something about Trump, which is, you know, an autocratic mafia state threat uh, through institutions like the DOJ and the FBI uh, and the IRS and other agencies that should have held him accountable a long time ago. Thank you for that, Sarah. Agree 100 percent. And in terms of media coverage of Trump and his agenda, I have an example here of a very alarming headline. This is from the Associated Press back on January 4th, uh, you know, just before the uh, anniversary of the uh, failed coup on January 6, 2021, the headline reads thusly, one attack, two interpretations. Biden and Trump both make the January 6 riot a political rallying cry. That's a neutral headline, <laughs> is it not? Yeah. I mean, the coverage has always been terrible. It's always minimized the danger. 
I used to think initially that they were just, you know, unimaginative people who couldn't get beyond this kind of horse race, you know, binary conception of American election life, because from their perspective, we had not yet been exposed to autocracy or, you know, different methods of state rules as back in 2016. They absolutely know what Trump is. They know that he is a proto-dictator. They know that these headlines are minimizing the damage that he's going to do. Uh, you know, Trump has enormous sway over the media, and it's not because, you know, necessarily they're fans. It's because he's somebody who threatens people. He threatens private citizens. He bribes them. I do think there's some greed involved. I think there's financial motivation behind some of these, you know, CEOs. But we've seen massive media layoffs in the last few months. You know, we're really losing journalism and reporting, especially investigative reporting, as an industry. So I tend to think that these portrayals of Trump that really play down the danger, they are top down. You know, they're coming from CEOs and others uh, who maybe, you know, see him as uh, beneficial, you know, in terms of tax revenue or whatever. Um, But I think they're also just frightened of him because he has all the dirt on them. I think he will do them bodily harm. You know, this is a a seriously dangerous individual. And a lot of folks are talking about him in terms of fascism. That's not quite what he is. You know, he's an autocrat, but he's really in the vein of a mafia state, you know, leader, a kleptocrat, somebody like Putin or like Netanyahu, somebody who will kill and who is hooked up to organized crime. And I think that that whole element of it, the organized crime element, is what's getting left out. And unfortunately, that is the element that the DOJ needs to control, because it's not like we as citizens can do a citizen's arrest of, of Donald Trump. They keep saying, oh, vote him out, you know, take action at the ballot box. It's like, well, you know, he, he's hooked up to the mafia. Like, we can't really do that part. That's your job. That's why we voted you in in 2020. You know, you were supposed to do something about this, but they didn't. So Yeah. We're speaking with Sarah Kenzior, co-host of the widely acclaimed Gaslit Nation podcast and author of the forthcoming book, um, The Last American Road Trip. Uh, Sarah, I, I we often hear media and political commentators congratulate our nation on defeating Trump's threat to democracy after Jan- after the January 6th insurrection. And these same commentators assure us that uh, the guardrails of U.S. democracy are strong and will hold if another Trump threat should arise. Um, I wondered if you would respond to that. What's What's your reaction to these kind of assurances we get that everything's peachy? Yeah, they're they're completely full of it. They've been full of it the whole time. They've been full of it for nine years straight, and honestly, I'm sick of it. You know, this is what I call the DOJ infotainment complex. It's meant to make people passive and kind of entertain them as autocracy slowly creeps in. You know, we had a rapid overturn of our political system under Trump, and then we've had a slower version under Biden in which they are always promising that justice is coming, you know, that these things take time, that we have to let it, you know, all these cases play out. It it is the opposite of what anyone who has ever dealt with an autocratic state will tell you to do, especially after an attempted coup. You know, the United States 
under Biden is now the first country in world history to not punish uh, the person who is organizing an attempted coup and allowing them to run for president again. You know, even with Hitler, he went to prison in between the time that he attempted a coup and, uh, you know, he and he took the presidency. Like Trump is the first person in history to do this. And so it's very unusual. Um, They're lying. A lot of them are people who used to work for the DOJ or the FBI, and now they make a lot of money as talking heads on television. And so I think a lot of what they're doing is just trying to protect the institutions where they used to work because their friends still work there, their old bosses still work there. You know, they were working there, and they didn't do anything about any of this, about Trump, and not just Trump, but, you know, like Paul Manafort, Roger Stone, Michael Flynn. Like, it's not just one guy. It's a whole gang of people with transnational organized crime ties, you know, that, that Mueller was looking into for a while and some others have sort of tried, but they really didn't do anything about it. So of course they're going to say everything's fine because otherwise they look completely incompetent or they look nefarious. And I think that that's why they're hired. You know, that's why they're put on TV all the time to kind of assure, you know, especially, I guess, older viewers, you know, kind of think the political system will continue on as it has since they were younger. I think younger people are more <laughs> because everything's been disastrous since they were born. They, they see through this a little more clearly. They're like, come on, man, like the, the guy attempted a coup. Like, this is not normal. We know none of this is normal. Uh, but yeah, it's really not helpful because it gives Americans this false sense of not quite security, but of like impending security that soon everything is going to be worked out and fine and that you can just vote this all out. Like, unfortunately, you can't, you know, you you should, you you should vote, you should still vote. Um, But it's not the thing that's going to solve all of these uh, problems at once. Yeah. Uh, So true. Uh, Sarah, We are seeing a lot of drama right now in the race to complete four trials against Trump, where he's charged with 91 felony accounts. Um, There's a lot of fault to go around, but I wondered if you would talk about the fault of Joe Biden's Justice Department here, Merrick Garland specifically, the attorney general, who waited years before uh, launching charges against Trump and his co-conspirators. I mean, there is a... There's a fairly uh, comprehensive case against him now for the attempted overthrow. But the reason why it might all fall apart, because Trump is uh, Trump is now trying to delay it until after the election, which wouldn't have happened if these charges were brought much earlier, which they could have been. Oh, they absolutely could have been. And this is Trump's lifelong strategy is to run out the clock. This is what Roy Cohn, when he was mentoring Trump, taught him how to do so. You know, they came into this situation with Trump having 40 years of using the exact same legal tactic, and then he used it again. So they should have expected that. You know, and then first of all, Merrick Garland could have taken the Mueller report, which outlined like, you know, 10 different examples of obstruction of justice and immediately gone after Trump. That was all written now. In terms of uh, looking at the attempted coup and the Capitol attack, they refused to do it. You know, they waited well over a year to even get started while our country was in jeopardy. Uh, And there's no excuse for that. And I think that Merrick Garland was installed to do this because he actually, you know, was a pretty terrible figure in the Clinton DOJ. He worked with a woman named Jamie Gorelick, 
um, you know, who was his own mentor and was mentored uh, by one of Trump's, uh, you know, cronies, Alan Dershowitz. Um, but most importantly, is Jared Kushner's lawyer. Like Jared Kushner's lawyer is the mentor of the leader of the Department of Justice. And everyone's like, wow, why is nothing being done about Jared Kushner and Donald Trump? It's like, you know, this is why. And so I think there are a lot of, uh, you know, very sort of, um, what's the word, close-knit relationships um, within this circle of criminals and, you know, lawyers and kind of lawyers that act as fixers. But it it does make me wonder, you know, uh, why Merrick Garland was placed in. You know, Biden was well aware of this. Biden was one of the people who got Gorelick into the Clinton administration. So this goes back to the 90s. I know the story sounds very long. If folks are interested in seeing more about it on my Substack, there's a long article detailing all of this. So you don't have to, to keep up with all of these strange names and dates and whatnot. Um, it's all written out. There's a very disturbing story. Um, and it also worries me that folks in the media won't pick up on this, that something like, you know, Jared Kushner's ethics lawyer is advising not just the DOJ, but also the January 6th committee and other governmental bodies. Like, mm. why is this person involved? Why are they having an impact? And how is it affecting uh, the prosecution of Trump? You know, those are all questions we deserve answers for. Absolutely. Well, unfortunately, we only have a couple of minutes left, and I, I wanted to uh, give you this last uh, question here. Uh, right now, there's a border standoff going on where Trump has asked GOP governors around the country to send state National Guard troops to Texas to the border to defy a Supreme Court order to Texas Governor Greg Abbott to stand down after he refused to allow federal border law enforcement to do their job to assist refugees, to assist refugees in danger, and uh, enforce border regulations. There's a trucker convoy going towards the border right now as we speak. And this seems to be a test for Biden and democracy if Trump and the GOP can just defy the Supreme Court. Yeah. I mean, what I see this as is a trial run. I think that Trump and his people are testing how various governors of different states react and whether they're more obedient to to the law and to the federal government or whether they're more obedient to Abbott, who's basically acting as a proxy uh, for what Trump wants. And, you know, when I was talking before about how Trump is different than typical fascists, like this is another way. He wants the destruction of this country. He does not want a strong United States of America. He wants it to be torn apart because that way it's easier to profit off of stolen resources. And so I think what they're doing now is they're kind of working up for a plan for that, maybe later in the year, maybe closer to election time. All right. Well, I want to just give you a moment to uh, give your Substack address, Gaslit Nation uh, web addresses and the like uh, before we say goodnight. Yeah, well, first, um, I have left Gaslit Nation. I left them in October, so I'm no longer part of that show. The archives are still up. The Substack is where I'm at. It's just uh, sarahkenzier.substack.com. I'm also on Twitter. Um, I have three books, uh, View from Flyover Country, Hiding in Plain Sight, They Knew. Uh, fourth book is coming out in 2025. So, yeah, I think that's it. Thank you. All right. Thanks for all you do, Sarah. appreciate it. And uh, when the new book comes out, uh, certainly before that, but uh, certainly when the book comes out, we'd love to have you back. Yeah, thank you so much for having me on. All right. Take care. Good night. Thank you. Bye. Bye. So that's it for the program tonight. Thank you all for listening. And uh, we're going to leave you with this. On the 
28th day, God looked down on his planned paradise and said, I need a man to test the will and goodness of a free people. So God made a dictator. God said, I need a man who failed in everything but theft and broken promises to live in a golden palace and convince the poor he serves their needs. So God made a dictator. God said, I need a wicked man to lead the common folk with hatred and fear. So God made a dictator. God said, I need a corrupt man who is above the law and immune from justice. I'm Francesca Rhiannon, host of Writer's Voice. In-depth conversation with writers of all genres. Writer's Voice, Mondays at 10 p.m. here on WPKN 89.5 in Bridgeport. Welcome to Counterspin, your weekly look behind the headlines. I'm Janine Jackson. This week on Counterspin, elite media can give the impression that problems wax and wane along with their attention to them. And not to put too fine a point on it, they're done with police brutality. So if you think news media 